37-year-old Alton Sterling, 32-year-old Philando Castile, we know those names well, but also the five Dallas Police Department officers shot this week while protecting protesters, 48-year-old Lorne Ahrens, 55-year-old Michael Smith, 40-year-old Michael Kroll, 32-year-old Patrick Zamarupa, 43-year-old Brent Thompson. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are heavy this morning as we have walked through a difficult week as a people, as a nation. To just see the openness of the brokenness and sin that is rampant that manifests itself continually, but it appears in our headlines from time to time in very uh, vivid ways. So we humbly come before you and we ask you to help us this morning through your word, through your spirit, to do in us what only you can do, what we can find in no one else or nowhere else. Take this hope, calm and quiet our fearful hearts. To give us courage. To give us love. Love for you, love for our brothers and sisters. So come, Holy Spirit, and do your work for your glory in the crossing church and let it spread beyond this worship gathering as we go back into the world that you have sent us to, to be your hands and feet. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're interrupting our normal walk through the Gospel of Mark this morning in light of the events in our nation this past week. Our desire is not to capitalize on a hot current issue that we know you would be engaged with, but to speak to our people about the chaos and the pain and the ongoing brokenness that is part of our culture. This is not a sermon that's going to answer every question or deal with every issue. That's not possible for one sermon. Uh, It's very complicated. But my prayer and hope for us is to have space this morning to lament As we've already read a psalm of lament, we're going to do that again. To have space this morning to pray. To recognize that we can't fix this. It's something only God can do. So we pray. We pray. To fight against the fear that's creeping into the hearts and minds of so many with truth and courage. To find some biblical grounds for hope that can be experienced even when the days are this dark. And then to continue this conversation beyond this worship gathering. For this not to be just a cathartic exercise that we experience for the next hour. But to be something that we carry with us tomorrow morning when we go to work. This afternoon when we have lunch. Tonight when we're gathered with our family. And we walk out small steps of obedience as a member of the body of Christ. That is sent with a message of love, compassion, and, and hope. Of Christ into this broken world. So I want to draw your attention to the book of Esther, the Old Testament book of Esther. I asked the Lord to lead me to a text. I wanted the text to be the foundation of what we talk about this morning, not just thoughts, random thoughts that I had. I'm trusting the spirits behind this. I was studying some books last night about the book of Esther, and in one of the books I was studying, the, the title of its introduction, Who Will Deliver Us? 
And he goes on to say, our news is full of people in trouble. What do we do in times of trouble? Who would deliver us from our trouble? Okay, thanks for that confirmation. The story of Esther, if you've read the story of Esther before, if you watched the VeggieTales movie, you know that it's a story about the life of Jewish people toward the end of the writings of the Old Testament, before this intertestamental period of time, the 400 years from the end of the Old Testament when Christ walked the earth. So, so knowing your Old Testament history, if you don't know it, just a brief synopsis in 586 B.C., the, the nation of Babylon fully and finally conquered the Israelites. They, they brought a large portion of the people from the, the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea as exiles back to the nation of Babylon. This is where Daniel and some others were brought captives back to the nation of Babylon. And they remained in exile in the nation of Babylon for 70 years until God raised up some leaders like Nehemiah and Ezra. With the permission of, of Persia. Persia had come in, had conquered Babylon by that time. Persia would rule the world, the known world at that time, uh, until the Greeks came in and conquered them, until the Romans came in and conquered them. But by the time 70 years had passed, the Jews had been in exile. Persia was in power. King Cyrus was the king. And he allowed, if you read the book of Nehemiah, the Jews to return to Jerusalem to begin the process of rebuilding the walls and eventually rebuild the temple and reestablish the Jews in their homeland. This story takes place several decades after that around 480 B.C. There are Jews who are returning more and more back to their homeland, but there are still many Jews who are living in the nation of Persia in the capital city of Susa. And that's the context for when the story of Esther takes place among the Jews living in Persia in exile. The Persian king Xerxes, chapter 1, grows frustrated with his queen Vashti, decides to send her away, divorce her, put out a call for a new queen, a new wife. The land is scoured for potential new wives to come in. All these young women are brought in. One of those women was Esther. Esther was an orphan raised by her uncle Mordecai, who lived in the capital city of Susa. Mordecai was, was able, by, under God's providence, she was able to become part of this harem of women who could potentially become the queen of Persia to rule with King Xerxes. Esther, through her beauty, through her charm, through the providence of God, becomes this queen. He did not know, Xerxes did not know she was a Jew. She intentionally, under the direction of Mordecai, did not disclose that. One day, Esther proves her loyalty to King Xerxes. Mordecai hears about a plot of assassins. She reveals this plot to King Xerxes. He's able to take care of the assassins, and he grows more fond of Esther, more in love with her. Now, the other main character in this story is Haman. Haman's second in command under Xerxes. Haman came from a class of people who had been enemies of Jews for hundreds of years, Haman hated the Jews. He especially hated Mordecai because Mordecai would not respect and honor him as second in charge over Persia. Mordecai would not bow before him. So Haman one day convinced the king to issue this binding edict. And when the king of Persia issues an edict, the law can't be reversed. This binding law that one day in the distant future, within the next year, all Jews in the land of Persia would be exterminated, which would include Jerusalem and Judea because that was under the Persian Empire. News reaches Mordecai, who is crushed with grief. The most powerful king of the most powerful nation on earth just issued a binding law that cannot be reversed, that all of his people are going to be exterminated nine months later. And so chapter 4 opens, and he's fasting in sackcloth and ashes, and Esther finds him. She, is, he, she has one of the most well-known conversations uh, in Scripture at the end of chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther faces the threat to her life because if she enters the presence of the king without his permission, she could be killed. She could certainly be divorced as a queen because the king is not happy. So Esther prepares a feast. She goes into the king's presence, prepares a feast. She invites only the king and Haman. They come. She says, please come back tomorrow for another feast. They do. The king is very pleased with Esther and says, okay, what do you want? Just ask, ask up to half of my kingdom. I'll give it to you. And so she courageously in chapter 7 reveals the plot of Haman, beginning in verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if, I, if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we, the Jews, have been sold, and I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would, not have, been si- I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Xerxes, or his other name is uh, Ahasuerus, said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king hangs Haman on the gallows that Haman had built to hang Mordecai, but the trouble was not over. The edict had still been issued. The Jews still faced the end of their life. So she goes to the, queen, the king one more time, risking her life one more time, to ask one more favor, one more request. In chapter 8, verse 3, Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pled with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it pleased the king, and if it had found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revolve, to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. And the king goes on to say, I can't change the edict. Once it's been written, it's been written. It can't be revoked. But because I, you have found favor in my sight, I will write another edict. Now you Jews can defend yourselves. You can bear arms. Anyone who tries to kill you, you can kill them. Anyone who tries to kill your family or children, you can take them out. So many months pass and the day comes where this, both edicts will be carried out and the Jews were saved. They were not attacked. They took care of their foes. And that day became then on in the life of the Jews, the Feast of Purim. When they were preserved from their enemies by God, celebrated at the end of the calendar year for the Jews in March, where they would continually remember God's deliverance of them through Mordecai and Esther. So what can we learn from this story of Esther that you got a five-minute synopsis of that helps us navigate the troubled waters of this past week and future weeks like it that will come. Remember, Paul said this in the, Old, in, in the New Testament about the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. These things happened to them, the Old Testament, as an example, the Jews, the Israelites, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Part of the purpose of the Old Testament for us in the New Testament 
And in the New Testament age, is to see in the lives of people and events recorded examples for our instruction. We don't make them into heroes, sinless heroes, but we do recognize when by God's grace they got it right. And we say, we want to do that. We want to be like that. And when they fail, we take heed lest we fall, as the next verse says in 1 Corinthians 10. The Holy Spirit inspired Hebrews 11 to be written when person after person is named as examples of faith, not sinless heroes, not the main character of Scripture, but men and women who, like you and me, by God's grace, sometimes we get it right. So let's learn from them without worshiping them. So from Esther, first we see that our position and time and place is part of God's providence. Our position and time and place is part of God's providence. Mordecai famously said to her in verse 14 of chapter 4, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is why all this has been happening. All of a sudden you're this orphan, you're this Jew in this foreign land. All of a sudden you become queen. What's the purpose of that? Mordecai says, who knows? Maybe this is the purpose. And she agreed and she went to work. That, that's why God had put her where she was when she was there. Why were you born where you were born when you were born? Why do you have the circle of relationships and people that you have? Why do you have the job, the house, the career, the neighborhood, the family that you have? God is sovereign over all of that. God is providentially carrying out His will, working in your life. It's not luck. It's not coincidence. It's not happenstance. It's, it's not even just because you made it happen. Like you're a genius, you're the hardest working person ever. And you, by the, the sweat of your brow and the skin of your teeth, you, you made your life happen. There's 10,000 things that you were given as a gift of God's grace to get you where you are today that you can take no credit for. It's His providential sovereign will over your life. He ordained all of this. Acts 17, 26, Paul says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. You are where you are living at this time according to God's providential will, which means you are part of His hands and feet in this broken world, sent to speak the gospel of Christ, to demonstrate the reality of the gospel to people who are broken and hurting. To speak the gospel against the darkness and lostness and brokenness and pain and sinfulness and hurt that exists in our culture and the lives of the people around you. Part of what God wants to do about this mess that we've seen last week is sitting in this room. Look around. Let's boil the events of this past week down to the root issue. What's the problem? Sin. What's the solution? Jesus and the gospel. How do you apply the solution to the problem? Look around this room. The church, only the church has been given the mandate of this message, given the empowerment of the Spirit of God to bring the remedy for the root salute, the problem to this, the, the, the root problem to all that we see in our culture to carry the gospel message, to live out the reality of the gospel to the hurting and the broken in our culture. Only the church has that call. Through God's people, empowered by God's spirit, speaking God's gospel to live out the reality of the gospel changed life. We're it. There's no other agency or organization that's given that mandate. Politicians, city leaders, nonprofit, grassroots movements, they may all by God's grace attempt with good intentions to apply remedies, but they are only band-aids on a heart attack victim. 
if not colossal failures which make the situation worse. Only the church has been ordained and empowered and sent with true remedy for the true problem. Quit looking to Washington, celebrities, the rich, viral posts, videos which tell good stories. Quit looking to your pastors to fix this. Look to Jesus. See that Jesus is in you. See that Jesus is sending you as his emissary, his ambassador to be part of the solution. One person at a time. One conversation at a time. One heart at a time. For such a time as this. Which quickly leads to the second lesson from Esther, and that's see Esther enter the struggle of the suffering. See her enter the struggle of the suffering. Now, there was some motivation Mordecai provided, if you remember. You know, fix this Esther, or trouble's going to find you. You can't hide in the king's palace. But she's a pretty smart lady. She could have made the choice to back away and wash her hands with this future suffering of her people, but by God's grace, she didn't. She embraced it. Even to the point she was willing to risk her life. If I perish, I perish. The idea being the queen cannot enter the king's presence without him summoning her. To do so, put your life at risk. The king had already sent one wife packing. And the king had final say-so of your life. As far as they knew, he could kill you instantly. It was risky. But compassion for her people drove her to sacrifice comfort and enter the suffering of her people. So many are either fearful to engage this issue or they are unsure of themselves. They would rather not do it because it's hard and uncomfortable. Can't we just all stream our movies and eat our food and have fun? It's so heavy. I don't want to get on Facebook and get into another argument or read another idiot. I don't want to post helpful things because I may get another person pushing back against those helpful things or get into another disagreement. Or I don't want to post something because people are sick of it. People just want to get on social media to have fun. Why is all this heavy stuff showing up? Now, don't get me wrong. When I say enter the struggling of the suffering or engage this issue, I'm not talking about tweeting and posting and hashtagging. Don't read too much into those who do post and don't read too much into those who don't post. You can retweet something and go back to your life and not give a rip about the issue. And there are people who haven't posted anything this is very heavy for them. And they're broken about this. But however the Spirit leads you to engage, engage and enter the suffering of those around you. I'll, I'll be posting some articles and resources today or tomorrow in the city and maybe send them out by email. Read them. Watch them. As much as possible, put yourself in the shoes of those who live as black men and women in our nation. That has a long, troubled history of racial relationships, primarily between blacks and whites. You cannot literally put yourself in their shoes, but listen, read, hear their stories, engage in conversations, ask questions of your black friends and coworkers and neighbors. Take the position of a humble learner and just listen. What does it mean to be black in America today? Help me see and understand so I can love you and pray for you and be your brother. Grieve with those who have lost their lives because of this. The list of names we just read. Don't just pass over another story and headline. Grieve. Stop and grieve. Weep. Mourn the loss of life. Remember, we don't see and don't have headlines 
that every day thousands of babies are murdered in the wombs of their mothers, disproportionately black babies. Every single day. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem for their hard-hearted rejection of their king. We have a high priest whose ministry was incarnational. He did not stay in heaven where it was comfortable and safe and where he received worship. He left heaven, came to earth, entered the mess of our lives, walked in our shoes, became one of us so that he could suffer for us and the sins that we see all around us so that we could leave the mess of this culture, of this life, and be with him forever in eternity. And now he sends us back into the same broken world as his hands and feet. Go there. Don't push back because it's uncomfortable or difficult or makes you experience white guilt because of our white privilege as a majority race. Press through that with humility. Read the stories of those who have spouses in law enforcement and how they fear for the life of their spouses now, who maybe won't come back home. And every day they know their spouse or their parent is engaging in confrontations that could cost them their life. Pray for them. Support their families. Thank them for their hard work. We cannot just continue to only engage these issues when the headlines are hot. And for the short time we care, we pray, we weep, and then we go back to normal life. Like ask the Spirit this morning, what is one step you can take to learn, serve, care, be part of the solution for the racial division that exists in this country? We want to be a multi-ethnic congregation. We're not. Not because we can get people to show up on Sunday morning, but because people are already in our life Monday through Saturday. We're living multi-ethnic lives every single day. And whatever that step is the Spirit leads you to, share that with your DNA group. Share that with your mission and community. Ask them to hold you accountable. And let's pursue this as a gospel community. Thirdly, see Esther engage with wisdom and courage. See her engage with wisdom and courage. This is such a great and unique story in the Old Testament. God delivers his people, not through a powerful miracle, but through the providential actions of his servants. Mordecai and Esther are so shrewd. So shrewd. Not manipulative, but definitely they're planning, they're thinking ahead, three steps ahead of where this is going. They're scheming, thoughtful, measured, deliberate, never sure if any of their plans would work. But putting them in place and trusting God, very instructive as we navigate, as we navigate very difficult issues. As I heard someone say Friday, as we navigate the nuance. Now look, there are some black and white easy issues in this, in this problem, Definitely. Racial and ethnic equality are definitely biblical in the heart of God. God never intended to only save one ethnic group. His heart has always been for the nations. God favors no race over another. All men and women are created in the image of God, regardless of how sinful or evil or mistake-prone they are. They are human. And just because they are human, they are deserving of our respect and are honoring them as human. We don't cheer the death of any human being. Not Osama bin Laden, not Alton Sterling, not a cop, not our most evil enemy. Human life is precious and treasured and to be given dignity. We grieve the loss of life and we hope and pray for the salvation of all people. That's easy black and white truth. That's not debatable. It's clear from Scripture. 
It's not debatable that racism and systemic racial injustice has existed and still exists in this nation. We still feel the consequences of buying and shipping millions of Africans to our nation to support our desires to have a thriving economy with cheap labor. Many of the founding fathers who have been given sainthood by some in the church had slaves. Many of the Puritans whose prayers we often read in this church own slaves. This doesn't discredit their words or thoughts, but it needs to be noted. These guys were really wrong on this issue. Our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, was founded so that slave owners in the South could send and be foreign missionaries all around the world while they still owned slaves and were members of the local churches. That's why the the Southern Baptists came to be, for which we have since repented of. Pulpits all over the South justified slavery Sunday after Sunday, and eventually our nation was torn apart in a civil war primarily over the issue of slavery. But it didn't end there. The struggle for equality continued for another hundred years, culminating in the civil rights movement and finally laws that were significantly changed to integrate our culture and make the playing field more level. But we still, as you know, have a long way to go. This is not a South issue or a North issue or an East or West issue. This is an American issue. We are a very young nation. We are still in the struggle. And for us in the majority race, Pretend as though it's not an issue or it's not real because we're not racist or we don't think we're racist because we haven't told a racist joke or laughed at a racist joke lately. Is racist. It's racist to unwillingly, to, to have an unwillingness to care about another race of people and their continued struggle to be treated equally by culture. You're treating another race of people as different. If it was happening to us, would we not care? Would we not do something, say something, speak up? Turning your back on another race of people because it's not your problem, your struggle is racist. Retreating to our white enclaves of white safety and comfort where we don't have to be confronted with the daily struggle of another race of people who are disproportionately killing their babies, putting their kids up for adoption, seeing their children suffer in the foster system, experiencing fatherless homes, poverty, lower education, higher crime, poorer schools, less access to summer jobs for the teenagers, disproportionate percentage of the prison population, disproportionate percentage of death at the hands of police. Whatever the reasons for all of that brokenness, it's broken, it's painful and destructive. We cannot turn our backs on that. It's not the plans of a good father for a people. It's the plans of an enemy to destroy a people. The systemic racial inequalities of our country are not debatable. They're real. And a third easy black and white bedrock truth concerning this issue is police and cops are part of the government that God has ordained to be his authority over cultures and societies. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, when Paul wrote this, he's talking about Nero, a psychotic Roman emperor. Crazy. And he says Nero was put in place by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's 
servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Ministers of God. Judges, presidents, congressmen, congresswomen, cops, teachers, ministers of God. Attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Therefore, cops, policemen, law enforcement officials are owed our respect, our honor, our prayers, our support, and our obedience. When we engage this issue, it should not be done in a way that makes their job harder or promotes a disrespect for their God-ordained authority. Even when we have protests or sit-ins or some of the things that have been done in the past, it can be done with nonviolence, with respect, with love and grace. So with those three black and white truths in hand, all people created in the image of God deserve honor and respect because they're human. There's definite racial inequalities in our nation over the last 240 plus years and counting and cops are ministers of God's authority in our culture. Then we can avoid some of the extremes that we see out there. We can navigate the nuance of upholding truths while upholding these truths. Like we can avoid the extreme perspective that black lives deserve preferential or special treatment, which is above and beyond um, equal treatment. We don't want to go down the road of intentionally making the situation worse. Black lives do matter. I don't agree with all the aspects of that movement, but they do matter. I'm thankful the message is out there. Just because I don't agree with everything doesn't mean I can't be thankful that the message is out there. The unspoken, implied message of that is all lives matter. Black lives matter because all lives matter. It'd be wrong to say only black lives matter. Equally extreme and wrong would be to ignore the systemic racial injustice that black Americans experience every day. It's wrong to say cops are racist or cops are out to get black people. It's wrong to say the events of this past week don't matter because Alton had a gun or was maybe reaching for a gun or he had a criminal record. Or this is just a ploy by the media to play the race card and divide us. The racial division in our country is not dependent on one perfect case. It's there. It's real. It's every day for a lot of people. It's wrong to dismiss this issue because you think you're getting played by the media. Like it doesn't exist or to make it worse. We're making it worse by talking about it. How come it's always white people that say that? So we navigate the nuance. We value the lives of all so we can say to our black brothers and sisters, we see you as equal and we care about the racial injustices you experience. But black brother and sister, we also want to press you. Why do you vote for one political party over 80-90% of the time when that political party is primarily responsible for the abortion industry that is killing your children at alarming rates? And some of these men who were shot were not innocent. Things could have gone down better if they would have not resisted arrest or would not have had an unregistered weapon or some of the things. It's not the cop is always evil, the black guy is always innocent. That's not the case. Speaking with a friend this past week, he's a lifelong career in law enforcement. The last 20 years or so he's been in the FBI. And he, he said, cops are trained. Action beats reaction. They can't wait to react. They have to act. 
So if you're resisting arrest, if you have a weapon, if you're reaching for what they think is a weapon, they're going to act. You have to be very careful. But let's not paint a broad brush and say the cops are always wrong and the men who were shot were always right. Let's be careful to investigate the facts. We navigate the nuance by saying to our white friends who are pro-life and conservative and say they aren't racist and they care about black people, then why are you backing a candidate for president who has made blatantly racist comments over the past few months? Why do you seem so dismissive of the issue of racial inequality in our nation? Why are you so uh, eager to support your, the police yet are silent when particular police make mistakes or do things that are blatantly corrupt? Even when the facts are investigated, they can be covered up and tribal protection happens because cops are trained to protect their own. They have to. It's part of the trust they have to have in each other as men who essentially are, are an armed force. We navigate the nuance when we say to our pastors and churches, we see you care and and concern for sin and the gospel, but why do you only seem to care about where people go when they die? For eternal life. And you seem to care little for the least of these, my brothers, those in prison, the homeless, the hungry, the oppressed, and the hurting. Jesus said, if you don't care for them, you don't care about me. You don't care for them, you don't have me, in fact. Matthew 25. We navigate the nuance when we say to other groups like liberal churches and nonprofit organizations who do care for the poor, the homeless, and those who suffer injustice, why do you only care about their quality of life now? And you don't care about their eternal life because you will feed and clothe them, but you won't give them the gospel. Or you'll give them this watered-down gospel that isn't the gospel. So they have their best life now, but they have no hope for eternity because they don't have Christ because you don't give them the gospel. You see, if we're truly adopting and claiming biblical truth, we're going to press on everyone. Beginning with and pressing the most on us, ourselves. That's this is not about national headlines or what we post or don't post or have conversations with people who are Facebook friends. We're not really doing life with these people. Our social media followers may know that this is important to us, but what about your neighbor? What about your coworker? What about your kids, your spouse, your classmates, your professors, your bosses? The people we do life with every single day. We press ourselves to not be self-righteous, but to be humble learners, to not live in this echo canyon where all we read and all we watch and all we listen to are people who agree with us. We get outside of that to hear the perspectives of other people. Because we're not the righteous ones. Only Jesus is righteous. We're broken sinners, too, who do things that add to the problem, either through our activity or our inactivity. God gave Esther great courage to plot a course with Mordecai to wade through some very difficult and tricky waters, not knowing the outcome. She could have stayed safe and enjoyed comfort, but that's not why God put her there. God has and is sending us to be empowered by His Spirit to engage these issues with His truth and the gospel to be pressed and to press others. And he will give us wisdom. He will give us courage because we have him. And his spirit is not a spirit of fear and timidity, as, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.7. But a spirit of power, love, self-control. So we can go with courage and boldness. Lastly, see Esther's hope in God. This is an interesting book, only book of the Bible other than the Song of Solomon that doesn't explicitly name God. But as Matthew Henry said, his fingerprints are everywhere. As Esther prepares to go see the king for the first time in chapter 4, 
She tells Mordecai and all the Jews to spend three days fasting so she and her assistants would do the same before she would see the king. This was not a toxic cleanse. This was a desperate cry for help from God. We're so desperate for you, God, so dependent on you. We want, you, we want to do nothing but focus on you for three days and let our heart hunger be reflected by the hunger of our bodies. She had no idea if any of these plans would work, but she moved forward, willing to die, trusting that their God would deliver them and use their plans to accomplish his plans. Ultimately, we see in Esther the bigger picture in Scripture. One who was also an advocate for the suffering. One who was also an intermediary between the king, who had the power of life and death, and the people. One who not only was willing to sacrifice his life for the suffering of his people, but one who did. One who was not only willing to suffer the wrath of the king to save his people, but one who did suffer the wrath of the holy king. See in Esther the good news of Jesus, who would come and take on the sins of his people so that they could be saved through his work. Our greatest hope when these seasons of bleakness and brokenness arrive is not that our engagement with people will change minds and hearts, or if we could elect the right person, things would get better, or if the right movements or the right march, the right protest could be started, then this situation would be resolved and disappear. Our greatest hope is King Jesus is coming back to make all things new, to fix all of this forever. That day is not now, it is coming, and it is true. It is as real as Jesus on the cross, Jesus in the tomb, Jesus rising from the dead. So it doesn't do away with the sin and brokenness that we see, but it gives us a taste of the day when it will all be done away with. As the king sends us as emissaries and messengers of his message of love, hope, grace, and truth, and we see it flourish, like we see people love each other. Not because you're like me, but even though you're different than me. Serving others who are different than them. Humbling themselves and learning from others. Those are all glimpses and tastes of what the king is coming to bring. And it makes us long for more. And it encourages us in our struggle with brokenness. You've seen this. Glimpses of his grace on social media this week. Stories of black women in stores being approached and hugged and cared for by white cops. Stories of black men being pulled over by cops. And there being a mutual respect. And things went well. Pictures of black men and white men praying over men in blue. Black people helping cops at a protest who were there to protect the protesters who were protesting excessive force used by the cops. These are glimpses of grace and instructive. There is a way forward where there is peace and love. It's not all bad and bleak. Now the sin in our culture is not going to disappear until the king returns. So there's going to be more headlines. It's going to happen again. But the sin in you and me can be dealt with by our king. And we can certainly repent of where we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not loved our brother regardless of the color of their skin. We can repent for where we have turned our backs and become apathetic. Where we have chosen comfort over courage. Where we have given into fear and not had faith. Our hope is in Jesus and the power of his gospel to first change us and then change those around us as we engage the city with his gospel. Our focus isn't to change the headlines, but to adopt the posture of the Good Samaritan, who did not coldly pass by the injured Jew in the road, but entered into the suffering of his brother and engaged him and sacrificed his time, energy, and resources to do what, as Jesus is saying in that story? To love his neighbor.
to love his neighbor as himself. Even though he had every reason to hate him because he was a Samaritan and that was a Jew. By God's grace, with God's power, we will engage with our neighbor and we will engage in love, putting our hope in God to change us and our culture, not putting our hope in our good works. We're going to transition now to time of repentance and then sharing communion together, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus to take away our sins. But I just want to encourage you. This is, this is so heavy. I can't believe I made this through this without just bawling because it's, it's just been so heavy all week. However broken you may be this morning about your sins and this issue, don't be crushed. Jesus was crushed for you. So you could be free from sin and live a changed life. Don't be crushed by what you haven't done. See, Jesus is taking that punishment for you so you can live differently and sent to be different. The Holy Spirit has not come to condemn you or heap guilt upon you, but to lovingly expose our sins and then immediately bring the gospel as the remedy and empower us to go live a changed life. Maybe this morning the Holy Spirit's opened your eyes and helped you see You don't have a relationship with Jesus. You've never trusted in him as your Lord and Savior. You've never become a follower of King Jesus. So this morning is the day of your salvation. If that's the case, we want to know. And then we're going to have a time of prayer after we take communion and sing a song. We'll give more direction about that later. The conversation, though, doesn't need to end right here. Let's continue this conversation at lunch. Let's continue it in our DNA as a missional communities this week. Let's ask the Spirit to lead us to tangible steps of obedience in light of this issue and then share what those steps are with our brothers and sisters. For many in this room, the first step could simply be awareness. So this week, you need to spend time reading and watching some of the resources we'll send or some that you can find on your own to provide more awareness of what it's like to be black in our culture. Or maybe have a conversation with a black friend along those lines. Take the posture of a humble learner. Listen. For others who are already there, the Spirit may lead you to further steps. For all of us, we can repent and remember the hope we have because of Christ. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in apathy. We don't have to live with bleakness clouding our lives. So I'm going to pray. And then we're going to read a prayer. If you're baptized repentant follower of Jesus Christ and we invite you after uh, a time of prayer and repentance when you're ready leave your seat come and grab a, a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and then return to your seats and then together we will share in this meal that points us to our only hope that is Jesus Father we are grateful that you are not absent but you are very present you're fully aware of the injustice that exists in our culture, of the sins of our culture. For you yourself suffered the most unjust act, a completely innocent man, suffering for the sins of millions. You know what it's like to be abandoned, forsaken, bruised, broken, beaten. You know what it's like to walk in the shoes of everyone who's ever lived on the face of this earth. So you are here with us. Help us to see that and have hope. Because the story doesn't end with bad news. It ends with good news. So fill our hearts with hope. Fill our hearts with joy. Fill our hearts with light. Because our hearts are filled with you. And if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't have you, 
Then open their eyes and help them to see that today is the day of salvation. And save them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.